Have you ever been in a situation where um, you don't really know what's required of you? It can be awkward, right? Like, um, I find this happens a fair bit just with me in general because I, I, I'm a little bit hard of hearing, but the masks really don't help things these days. And so <laughs> what happens sometimes is like uh, people will be talking and you don't want to be that person that keeps going, what, 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 what? So you're like trying to track with them and you think maybe if I keep smiling and nodding for a little bit, I'll be able to piece things together and then agree with them. And, but then you realize there's this awkward pause where they're waiting for something back from you. <laughs> like they ask you a question and you don't know, like, is it a yes, no? If I, like you don't know, you don't know what to do, right? That can be awkward. It grows, the situation grows in severity depending on how important the situation is. I don't know what's required of me um, on a test, a school, you're writing an exam, you get the paper, you look at the questions, and it may as well be written in another language. It's like, I don't, I don't know what this stuff is. Um, you go to a job interview and they ask you a question that Clearly, you should have known. You, you show up to, to do something with the government, and they're asking for supporting documents, and you have no idea what they're talking about. These, these things can be really significant. None more significant than on the great day, the last day, than we appear when we appear before our king, before our maker, before our judge. It is imperative for us who would enter the kingdom to know what is required. Jesus himself, as he preaches these three parables in response to a challenge from the religious leaders of his day, ends his teaching by saying many are called. The gospel goes forward to many people, but few are chosen. Not everyone understands what is required. Not everyone res responds with what is required. So the question for us today is, do you understand what is required of you for the kingdom of heaven? Jesus, in each of his three parables, reminds us that this is what he's teaching in verses 31 and 43 and in chapter 22 and verse 2 he reminds us specifically that he is talking about a kingdom the kingdom the reign that he the messiah the son of david is bringing from heaven to earth if you want in he will explain to us what is required the first thing matthew shows us in this passage as he recounts jesus teaching for us is that the kingdom requires submission. The kingdom requires submission. Submission to authority. I wonder if you've ever had someone try to claim authority over you wrongly. I mean, sometimes it's, it's kind of laughable. You know, you, you look at maybe it's a little kid and they're precocious and they're just like, get me a drink or something ridiculous. And they're just like trying to boss around adults in their life. They have no business bossing around and they, they need to be corrected. But, it, you know... It's part of growing up. It's part of learning authority. So we can shrug it off. You know, the situations that are a little bit more frustrating are when there are people who should know better, but they still try to claim authority over you. Like, like if you're at work and a colleague who's your peer all of a sudden start asks, starts, starts talking to you like they're your boss, starts putting demands on you and requiring things of you. Well, that kind of grinds us, right? Okay, that's all kinds of messed up. Uh, or, or even if it's someone who's supposed to be in submission to us, it's someone underneath us in the workplace, and now all of a sudden they're trying to subvert us or go behind our back or claim some kind of authority over us, that can grind us, right? That works us. And yet what Jesus is addressing in our hearts is the reality 
that this is so often how we interact with our God, with the claims of our King, our Messiah. Verse 23, when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching. So, you know, just a reminder of who we're dealing with here for a minute. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are names that we often see. Uh, groups like the Herodians we often see in Matthew's gospel. And it's important to understand these are overlapping groups with the chief priests and the elders of the people. So like the leaders, the religious leaders would together make up one body called the Sanhedrin. So in their role on that council, the council that is, has authority over the temple, there would be some who would be Pharisees, some who would be Sadducees, some who would be chief priests. There would be some of a priestly class, a Levitical class, and some who weren't. But when they're described as Pharisees and Sadducees and Herodians or this type of grouping, they're being described by their theological arrangement. So like Baptists versus Presbyterians kind of thing. When they're being described here as chief priests and elders, it's talking about members of the Sanhedrin, some who were priests and some who were not. So, so in other words, it's just their position in the temple. That's the reason why they're coming to Jesus here, because they have position and title. They're members of the council. This is their class. And so is the ruling class, the authoritative class of the temple. They come to Jesus as he's teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? Now, on the surface of it, that's a good question, right? Because he, he just caused a whole ruckus yesterday. He, he, like, turned over tables and tossed around money and set a bunch of birds free. The place was chaos. He's healing people and letting the, the, the previously unclean come into the presence of God. Now he's standing in the temple courts teaching something that the religious leaders themselves wouldn't approve of. So if they actually have authority over the temple, this is exactly what they should be doing. They should be protecting it from would-be upstarts and people with new teaching. So they challenge him, by what authority are you doing all these things? Who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. This was, uh, this was typical rabbinical exchange. So as a rabbi or group of rabbis would interact with another rabbi or group of rabbis, they would ask each other questions back and forth. So this is the way dialogue typically unfolds. So it seems like Jesus is engaging them here as he asks them a question after they asked him a question. Verse 25, here's Jesus' question. The baptism of John, and understand here that the baptism of John is representative for the whole ministry of John. Uh, John's known for baptism. That was the unique feature of his ministry. That's why he's called John the Baptist, not John the minister, right? So the baptism of John is representative of his whole ministry, his preaching, his baptism, everything that he was about, his proclamation, his message, his influence. From where did it come? Jesus asks, did it come from heaven or did it come from man? And they discussed it among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. We're not going to give you an answer because it'll cost us either way. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, this is more than just a little gotcha. Like it, it can seem on the surface, if we don't know what's happening, like, like Jesus is playing games. Like, well, fine, you won't answer me, then I won't answer you. And, and on the surface, if that's all you want to take from it, then fine. But the brilliance of Jesus' question is that he's using this interchange 
throwing out a challenge, a question back to them, that if they pause and reflect, Jesus, even in his non-answer, is actually giving them the answer to their question. Because, do you remember John's ministry? He's like, hey guys, do you remember John's ministry? Do you remember what John proclaimed? John's message predicted the coming of the Messiah. It proclaimed and prepared the way for the coming of the Lord. This is Matthew chapter 3, all the way back at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. Matthew 3, verse 2, repent. This is John the Baptist. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John told you the kingdom was coming. The king is coming. The reign is coming. There's going to be a claim of authority. He told you that. For this, John, is he who is spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. So you know where he's coming from. If John himself is a fulfillment of prophecy, you know where he comes from. He comes from heaven. He comes from God. He who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, here's John's job, prepare the way of the Lord, prepare the way of Yahweh. God himself is coming to his people to bring salvation, so make his path straight. (laughs) John said, get ready for God to come and save John said, the one who's coming after me, I'm not worthy to bend down and touch his shoes. So if John's ministry comes from God, then what does that mean about Jesus and his authority? For those who are willing to receive John, the answer is clear. Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus is the one who has come from heaven. The one who comes bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth. But look at, look at how crippling the pride of these religious leaders is. They're torn. They're so easily torn and they're stuck because of their fear of people. This is what happens when you live for approval in the eyes of people. You are utterly miserable. They're too afraid to just let Jesus be. they got to do something. But they're too afraid to actually say something because of what the people will think about them. If we don't address it, the people will think we're not in authority anymore. But if we do address it, then the people will be mad at us because they like him. So they get mad and they treat him like he's the problem. This is the problem. If you, if you are working so hard, if you are living to earn the approval and favor and pleasure of other people, first of all, you won't. People will see through it. But second of all, you'll miss the opportunity to actually win the approval of the only one whose approval actually matters. You cannot follow Jesus if you fear people. They're trapped. They need people to approve of them, so they need to shut Jesus down. But trying to do that is going to lose people's approval. They're trapped. It's sad. John's baptism predicted Jesus, proclaimed his coming, and prepared the way. How did it prepare the way? It prepared the way by calling people to repentance. His baptism was a baptism of repentance, right? Of turning away. Here again in Matthew chapter 3 is John's message. Matthew 3 and verse 8. He said this. This is familiar language, right? In Matthew 21, we've already seen a cursing of a fig tree. Look at what John himself said. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You're going to say that you're repenting. You're coming for baptism, for repentance. Bear fruit. 
Don't just be leaves and tree, bear fruit. He goes on in verse 10 of Matthew 3. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The tree and leaf with no fruit will be cursed, cut down, and thrown into the fire. This was the message of John the Baptist. Turn, repent, change. But they would not submit to the authority of God through the mouth of his servant, the prophet John the Baptist. That's what Jesus wants to address. Look at verse 28. What do you think? He's going to tell them a parable to address this reality that they would not submit to the truth. A man had two sons. He went to the first son and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, no, <laughs> I will not. Grouchy, maybe it's first thing in the morning. Sometimes kids, when they wake up in the morning, they're grouchy. No, I don't want to do that. But he thinks better of it. He changes his mind and he goes. Verse 30, the, the father went to the other son and said the same. And the other son had a good spirit. I go, sir. But then he, he didn't go. He didn't follow through. So Jesus puts it to the crowd. Which one actually did the will of the Father? Even the crowd can pick up on this. The first, the one who actually did it. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. It's, uh, it's, 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 it's almost impossible to overstate how offensive this statement would be to those who pride themselves on religious purity. We're the ones who keep the law, who teach the law, who protect the law. We're the ones who are protecting the temple. And the tax collectors are the ones who work for the Romans, who oppress God's people. They defile the purity of God's people. The prostitutes are the evil, the wicked, the sinful, the dirty, the unclean, the low. In the eyes of the religious leaders, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are the lowest of the low, the worst and the vile the slimy and the evil and Jesus says they get in before you in fact the way the grammar is, is, is structured it's, it seems to be implying they go in and you don't they go in at the expense of you how could this be that those who started off so wrong messing up everything in their lives go into the kingdom and are welcomed how could that be verse 32 John came to you in the way of repentance or in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes, here's what separates, they believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your mind. You didn't repent. You didn't change the way of your thinking. You didn't turn around. You did not believe him. You did not submit to the authority of God and repent. So much of repentance is simply acknowledging that we've tried to live as our own king. I, I want to set the rules for myself. I want to be my own authority. I don't want anyone to exercise authority over me or tell me what to do. And so we end up living the way that we do for a reason, right? I decide. My life, my way. Repentance means acknowledging that there is a king who does have a law and he claims authority over you.
And it's important to see that the reason they're so sensitive here as Jesus comes is he's coming right into the temple, right into the heart of what identifies the people. This is everything they're passionate about, everything that gives them their identity, everything that they love is bound up with the temple and temple worship and cultural identity and our national identity. And this is who we are. And Jesus walks right into the center of that, the heart of the people and says, I'm king here. It's the same claim that he makes on us. What's, what's the temple? What's the center of the center? What's your identity? What's your passion? What's your love? What's the thing that I'm claiming for me? What's the thing that if Jesus touches, if he claims authority over, I don't want him? Because that's exactly where he goes. The reality is, if, if, if Jesus isn't king here, he's not king anywhere. They must give up authority over themselves, over their own lives, stop living their own way, start following the laws and the preaching of the kingdom of heaven, or they will die. The same remains true for each of us. But listen, this is really good news. Like, it seems heavy, but this is really good news. Jesus says that tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom. Why? Because they believe, because they turn, that's it. If you repent and you believe, it does not matter how far astray you've gone. It doesn't matter if you woke up this morning and said, I don't want to have anything to do with God, like that first son. I don't want to obey. I don't want to do it. If you turn, even now, no matter where you've been or how you've lived, the point is this, the kingdom belongs to you if you repent. If you turn, if you turn, if you say Jesus is king and where he says I will go and what he commands I will do, the kingdom of heaven belongs to you. This is not simply a one-time thing. Sometimes we think of repentance, right? The message of the gospel is preached. Christ was crucified for our sins and raised. So if you repent and believe, you'll be saved. And repentance is a one-time thing sometimes in our mind. Oh yeah, I remember that time I prayed, I repented. But repentance is not a one-time thing. It's a way of life. It's a lifestyle. It's an ongoing reality. <laughs> Constantly giving over to God what is his. Which means that the second thing Matthew shows us about this kingdom is this. The kingdom requires stewardship. The kingdom requires stewardship, that we give to the king what actually is his. I don't know if any of you have ever had an experience like this. I've heard stories of people, you know, hypothetically doing things like this, where you uh, walk through a parking lot and you're, uh, you're, you're looking for your car and then you find your car and you get into your car and you, you, you go to try to start the car, but your key doesn't work. That's, that's, and then all of a sudden you look around and realize that's not your car. Um, that's really hard to explain when the person whose car it is walks up to that car. You, you see, see what's happened there is you, in thinking that that was your car, because it looks like your car, you're distracted, you tried to take something that doesn't actually belong to you, claiming something is yours when it's not. The reality is, the, as Jesus said, the authority is not yours. So the truth is that the whole of your life is not yours. It doesn't belong to you. Nothing that you have belongs to you, but to him. Look at how Jesus teases this out in a parable. 
Here another parable, verse 33. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard. Look at all the things he does to get the vineyard ready, ready? He planted the vineyard. That's a great cost, right? You gotta get all the fields ready. You gotta buy all the seeds. Gotta do all the work to plant the seeds. All the fertilizing, everything has to go into it. So he planted the vineyard. He put a fence around it. So they're gonna try to, you know, like chicken wire, gonna keep the animals out so that the crops don't get eaten. Put a fence around it. He dug a wine press in it so that the workers have a place to work. He can do all the work right on site and he built a tower he built a tower so that it would protect th- from from thieves or raiders people coming in the night to take it so they've got a tower to watch and then he leased it to tenants who could devote all their attention their full-time work is going to be getting fruit from this vineyard and then he went into another country Jesus is picking up here. If, if you want, you could go back and look at Isaiah chapter 5. The first seven verses, there's a parable that Isaiah told that was much the same that talked about how God prepared Israel. He provided for them. He created them. He saved them. He redeemed them. He gave them the law. He gave them everything that they needed to bear fruit. But then he looked for fruit and they did not bear fruit. Jesus expands on that now in his day. Verse 34, when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his Fruit. Notice the way that's worded. It's the owner's fruit. It's not the tenant's fruit. Even before they give it to him, it's already his. His field, his property, his workers, his fruit. Verse 35, and the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, He sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this this is the heir. Let's kill him. We can have his inheritance. They took him out of the vineyard and killed him. The, The servants in this parable are representative of the prophets of God, right? The messengers who've been sent. So if God made all the preparations in the Torah, in the law, for God's people to live fruitful lives, he called them, he saved them, he redeemed them, he gave them a land, he gave them instructions to live. They're not bearing fruits. What does he do? He sends the servants, the prophets, to remind them of all that he had revealed, of all that he had told them, of all his commandments, of the promised blessing. If only they will turn and give God the fruit from their lives. But what did the people do to the prophets in the history of Israel? These exact things. They beat them. They killed them. They stoned them. And so on and so forth. And they refused to give the fruit to the one who deserved it. And Jesus puts himself, the son, at the end of a long line of prophets. Again, tying himself up. Now it's not just Jesus with John, but Jesus with all the prophets who came before and were rejected. He did that earlier in the gospel in Matthew chapter 5 at the end of the Beatitudes when he said rejoice when people reject you and persecute you and curse you because that's what they did to the prophets and this is what they'll do to the messengers of the kingdom as well. This is... This is a, worth reflecting on, maybe just as an aside for us. In Jesus' terms, how you treat the servants is inextricably bound up with how you treat the son. How you view one impacts how you view the other. Which means it is impossible, no matter how much you profess to love the son, it is impossible for you to actually honor him if you don't honor his word, delivered by his servants, the prophets. 
So it's not uncommon then for us to find our hearts growing cold and distant from the sun, our lives less and less obedient to the sun, when we grow more and more distant from his word in our lives. You, you cannot claim to honor the son and disregard his servants. Those two things cannot coexist. Jesus says, you rejected the servants. Of course, you'll reject the son. You're going to take him out and kill him. But what's the answer then in verse 40? After the son has been killed, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a wretched death. He'll put those miserable people to a miserable death. There's a play on words, a little pun here. The miserable people for a miserable death and he'll let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits. This is the point. He gets the fruit. He will do what's necessary so that he gets the fruit in their seasons. This is a big ask. The tenants, all of their work, all of their labor is now handed over to the one who deserves it. This applies first and foremost to the religious leaders in the temple who are acting like the car is theirs. But in reality, the key doesn't fit. They do not own this place, though they're acting like it. The fruit from anything and everything that happens here belongs to God and to God alone. But it also applies to us as well. In our own lives. Do you exist for the fulfillment of yourself or for bearing fruit for your creator who made you, who saved you, who keeps you, who gave you his instructions, who revealed his will to you, who put you in a church family, who has, who has prospered you so that you can live for him now, who has done all of that. So then the question becomes, what do we do with our talents? What do we do with our intellect? What do we do with our time? What do we do with our money? What do we do with our service? What do we do with our family? What do we do with our work? How do we ensure that through all of this, in every aspect of our lives, the fruit goes to the one who deserves it? Am I bearing fruit for the king, for the Lord of the vineyard? Everything that I have, down to my own body, my own affections, my emotions, my intellect, all of it actually belongs to him. I've been prepared. Everything's been sorted out so that I can give fruit to him. Now, <laughs> there's lots of reasons why we might not like that. We want to live for ourselves. Like we want to rule ourselves. So maybe when we hear Jesus making claims like this, we think, oh, fine, whatever. I can shut him out, though. I can shut him down. I can turn him off. I can turn him away. I can reject him. I don't have to accept that claim over me. That's what the religious leaders thought. Look at verse 42. Jesus addresses them. Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. See, fundamentally, there's a contrast between two actors here, right? There's those who are acting, the builders, and then there's, there's God. There's what the builders attempt. Let's set this stone aside, and there's what God does. He makes it the, the capstone, the crowning piece on the top of the temple. He makes the one who is rejected to be honored. This is, this is significant. 
This is what Jesus goes on to say, verse 43. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus says, hey, you, you remember Psalm 118 that the kids were singing yesterday? If you keep reading in that psalm, you're going to find this, this truth recorded. The stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone, has become the chief stone. This, this might be reflective of David's experience, right? David, uh, David they, they found out, um, you know, they, they found out that everything didn't match appearances. David, a, a little shepherd boy, marches out to meet Goliath, and, and he, was, he was overlooked. He was mocked. David's own brothers were like, man, would you keep quiet? You're not going to fight Goliath. Goliath mocks him and belittles him, but in the end, the Lord used him to accomplish his purposes. When Samuel, the prophet, comes to, 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 to David's father and says, hey, one of your sons is going to be king, David's father gets all of his other brothers and assembles them and says, which one of them? And David's still out with a sheep. He didn't even think to call him. <laughs> here's, here's the reality. David was the one that the builders rejected, but he became the king that the Lord gave the promise. Maybe it's David's experience. Maybe it's just Israel's experience. They were chosen because they were the least of all. They were a nation that was ultimately pathetic. They, they, they were wanderers. They had no homeland. They had no king, but God set his love on Abraham. And even throughout their history, whether they were enslaved in Egypt or whether they're being bounced around in the intertestamental period before Jesus, they are overlooked. But in reality, God uses them to bring the Messiah. It doesn't matter what people think. It matters what God does. <laughs> what is God going to do with Jesus? You can try to reject him. You can try to kill him. You can try to kill me, Jesus says. And in fact, they live to see the fulfillment of this prophecy because they will kill him. They will put him to death. But what will God do? God raises him from the dead on the third day. He has seated him at his right hand where he reigns even now, interceding for us. And one day he's going to return and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Everyone will give him glory because God's made him the capstone. You could try to reject him, but it's folly. It's foolishness. You stand against God himself. Verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard, this par heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Again, Jesus is being pretty bold here. In the temple, in their playground, he's taken on the bullies. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds. There's their people fear again. Because they held him, the crowds held him to be a prophet. I just want to point out the insanity of opposition to Jesus. Jesus says, hey, you're the ones who reject the authority of the prophets. And you despise the prophets and you persecute them and you kill them. And because I'm a prophet, you're going to do the same thing to me. And they're like, no, you're not a prophet and we'll prove it by killing you. They're actually doing, they're fulfilling his prophecy to try to prove that he's not a prophet. You can try to oppose him. In the end, you will be found to only be accomplishing his purposes in the end. Jesus will be honored no matter what you do. But if you submit to him, if you honor him, 
you commit to live for him with all of your life, then here is the last thing, the third reality of this kingdom that Matthew wants us to see in these parables. This kingdom requires celebration. Celebration, it's a specific celebration. It's a celebration for specific things. And this celebration, like most parties, requires something of you, whether it's a present or clothes or whatever. Uh, this party requires something of you, but it is a party as Jesus pictures it. Now, I would imagine if you've been around children's parties or, frankly, weddings, sometimes you'll notice that there are bratty people who attend. Uh, and they're kind of upset that the party's not about them. And they can make it known that, that right? As a, as a kid at a party, where's my present? You know, where's my, where's, my, where's my loot bag? Why isn't anyone talking about me or playing with me? I want to play this game, not that game. Nah, the authority's not yours. Your life is not yours. The party is also, friend, the party is not yours. Jesus says in verse 1, Again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. This is huge, right? A king has a son, the prince, the future king, getting married. This is a huge party. <laughs> so you want to show up. Verse 3, he sent his servants to call those who were invited. So there would have previously, in a situation like this, been like a, essentially a save the date sent out. Like, hey, we're getting ready for the party. Everybody, make your preparations. Make sure you got your servants lined up to watch your animals in your fields on this day because you're going to need to be here. You're going to need to be prepared. So now the message is going. All the preparations have been made. The time has come. Call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, again, picturing the prophets, going and pleading, saying, tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered, everything is ready, all the work has been done, the preparation's made for you to come and enjoy, come to the wedding feast, verse 5, but they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, they, they, got, they got nothing better to do, it's just simply a slight on the king. They don't want to go to someone else's party. While the rest seized his servants and treated them shamefully and killed them, the king was angry. This is crazy. <laughs> Man, sometimes I wish we lived under a king, and then sometimes you're like, oh yeah, you look at what happens. It's like, oof, this stuff can get crazy real fast. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Judgment is swift. Why is the judgment so swift? Why is it so severe? Well, because of a couple things. One, it was an honor to be invited to the wedding of a king, a king's son. And to not go is to say that you think very little of that king. You are dishonoring and disrespecting that king. You're shaming him who is seeking to honor you by inviting you in the first place. But, but more than just disrespecting and dishonoring, there's disobeying. This invitation was also a command. Come, come to the way. I'm sending repeated service. And they don't just not receive the commands. They kill the people who offer the commands. As if to say, we don't, not only do we not have to obey you, we're stronger than you. We can reject you. The king will have none of that. Destroys them and burns their city. Verse 8, then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, into the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. I love this. Those servants went to the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. 
<laughs> That's great, right? Like, like, like tax collectors and prostitutes, like people who've blown it, messed up, gone the wrong way. Here's your chance. You, doesn't matter. You don't have to offer anything. You come with nothing. Just come. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. There will not be one empty seat. The hall will be filled. This is a party. This is important to notice this in context, right? Jesus is opposed and rejected. He's days away from being killed. And yet the kingdom is still characterized by joy. At the end of the day, the stone that the builders rejected is going to be the capstone. People may reject the invitation for a time now, but the hall will be filled. So we live in the face of opposition and rejection, but we live with indomitable joy because we know where this whole thing's going. The feast will happen because the father delights in his son and he's giving him a bride. It expresses the son's victory and honor. Jesus will be glorified. And so God welcomes us into his abundance, into his joy, which should give us hope and, and purpose and confidence in our mission. There's a, there's a little Easter egg here in the previous parable that Jesus talked about when the kingdom is going to be taken away from them, the religious leaders who rejected him, and it'll be given to a people who will bear fruit. The word for people is the word that's going to be used for nations. Go therefore into all nations. Make disciples. Make disciples of all nations. The mission is going forward. People will come from every place on this planet and every background. People will come and worship Jesus. And the offer is still free. The work has been done. The table prepared. The hall has been set. The king has done everything to welcome you into his abundance and joy. He calls you to come. To come for free. To come experience joy in the celebration of his son. Everyone can come. But then there's this weird twist. Look at verse 11. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? I've, I've been guilty of this sometimes. You show up at a wedding and you just, you know, oh shoot, this was like a really fancy wedding. <laughs> and he didn't quite dress up the way everybody else apparently got the memo. Like that can be awkward, right? This isn't that. This is, uh, this is simply put, as they're calling people, both the good and the bad, and people from everywhere to come. They're not expecting the rich and the famous. They're not expressing, expressing, you know, expecting Hollywood's best dressed or anything like that. Wedding clothes that would be acceptable would be simple, plain, white, clean robes. That's it. Just find something clean, something that doesn't smell that bad. Put it on and come. That's it. As an expression of honoring the one who you are coming to celebrate. This guy didn't even bother to get dressed in clean clothes. He was speechless when challenged because he realizes his folly. Verse 13, And the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. The, the one consistent reality between the open offer to everyone and the rejection of the one who doesn't come dressed properly here? So that the ones who reject and the one who comes dressed poorly, both are refusing to honor the son. 
to honor the king. So just because the offer is free doesn't mean that you are or that the kingdom is. It's not a small thing to be invited to the wedding of the king's son. It is huge. It is an honor. It is an obligation. And if you show up to this kingdom like you are doing the king a favor by coming, you have fundamentally got things reversed. Well, I can't be bothered to get dressed. He should just be happy that I'm here. What Jesus is addressing is the attitude that takes the gospel invitation cheaply that says, Jesus promised forgiveness of sins. Fine, I'll come, but I'm not going to give him fruit for my life. I'm not going to adorn my life with good works. I'm not going to give the glory and the honor and the obedience and the service and the repentance to him. I'm still going to just care about me. And in the meantime, act like I'm doing him a favor by just being here. This can show up in so many different areas of our life. Here's one, it can, it can show up in how we approach church, right? I'm not talking about your clothes. I could care less about your clothes. It's a metaphor. It's trying to prove a point. It is a party. It is a celebration. It is rejoicing, but it's not about you. When you come, do you come with a joy that is found in the work of the Father and the Son? the celebration of what he's done, the table that he has prepared for us, the invitation to come and be part of the family. Do you rejoice in that? Or are you sitting there like a bratty kid at a party, playing a game you don't want to play? We've been invited. We've been invited to the wedding of the king's son. We've been invited to the banquet. We have been honored by the king and that requires something of us, that we adorn our lives with good works, with fruit in response to his grace, as we celebrate his kindness to us. He, here's the reality. He deserves all glory, all honor, all praise from our obedient lives that are submitted to his authority. This is what the kingdom requires. The question for you, friend, is have you have you responded? Jesus will be victorious. The kingdom is coming. You've been invited to the celebration. Are you coming? Are you bringing him his fruit? Let's pray.